What, you want me to teach you something? You want to learn something? You talking to me? Just talking? Well, what's the show about? It's about nothing. Hello, and welcome back to Much Talk About Nothing. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Grant Skillen. I am one of the co-hosts of this podcast, and I'm not in today's episode, but I do get to record the intro. In this episode, Grant Ingram, my other co-host, sits down and talks with Dr. Blake Scott Ball, who is the author of Charlie Brown's America, The Popular Politics of Peanuts. And they talk about the wonderful and influential life of Charles Schultz, and they talk about the Peanuts comics and films that everyone knows and loves and that have taken on a life of their own i hope you enjoy this episode i've listened to it it's fantastic i loved it i hope you love it and here you go so today i'm sitting down with dr blake scott ball author of charlie brown's america and um first off i just want to ask dr ball how are you doing i'm doing good today good i'm glad to hear that so you you wrote this book, right? This it's about how Peanuts was influenced by American politics during its run. How did you come up with that idea? Well, it sort of married two um, seemingly um, disconnected interests that I have, which is on the one hand, sort of uh, serious political history and and the narratives of how how uh, power is is uh, acquired and used, and um, is sort of the the big overarching narrative of of American history. Combine that with my love for cartoons and comic books and comic strips. Growing up, um, it struck me at one point as I was uh, a grad student scrambling around looking for. Uh, a good topic to research, it struck me that, you know, um, comic strips appeared yeah, in a space that, uh, in the same space that we do our, all of our serious discourse about um, public life and about political issues and social issues. Um, you know, Peanuts was appearing regularly for decades in the New York Times and the Washington Post and uh, other major news outlets in the country. And so I thought, you know, uh, I wonder, there, given the, the popularity of this thing, there has to be some sort of connection uh, being made between this news-hungry audience and this Charlie Brown-hungry audience. And so that's that's what I went looking for, and, and that's what the book's about. Okay. That's it's just fascinating. I never would have thought uh, to bring up the connection. <laughs> so, so you, you've kind of found that. And then how did you go about like starting your, your research and really diving into the topic? Well, um, of course, one of the things I had to do was to read 50 years worth of Snoopy. Um, it, it ran beginning October 1950, ran all the way to February of 2000. And so there were a lot somewhere north of 17,000 strips to get through um and to sort of piece together what's what's going on just in the story of the comic strip itself um i also did a lot of of reading of of anything i could find that charles schultz had had to say or in uh through interviews or uh things like that uh but one of the one of the biggest and and sort of uh coolest resources 
in writing this book was actually um, the Charles Schultz Museum and Research Center out in um, Santa Rosa, California, Northern California, up in the, the wine country and a uh, beautiful place. Um, awesome people. His family was involved with uh, helping get that set up. And what they have there is uh, mountains of original artwork, uh, correspondence between uh, Schultz and his readers over the decades, uh, business records, uh, original scripts to the TV specials as they were, you know, sort of cutting and literally cutting and pasting they'd type it out and then they cut it and they paste the the script together um uh i mean all sorts of paraphernalia and and um uh, like uh, uh commercial goods and stuff like licensed goods from from across the decades just just anything and everything under the sun for peanuts um uh, they've tried to bring together in this one site so i spent a lot of time in Northern California, uh, sitting in their reading room, just digging through boxes and boxes and boxes of awesome stuff. Wow. I didn't even know that existed until I, I had the privilege of hearing you speak a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, it's, it's a cool spot. It's worth a visit. Even if, you know, just, you know, you're just sort of a nominal uh, Snoopy fan. Um, like I said, the weather is always beautiful. And I think I think in the years that I've been going out there, I've, I've seen rain one time. Um, and, uh, just, just beautiful area. And, uh, the museum is awesome. It's, it's so well designed. Um, they have, you can go in this section that is like a recreation of what his studio was like. And so you can see his drawing desk and, and his shelves and, and, uh, all the kind of artwork and stuff that surrounded him as, as he, as he hammered out every single day, this, this little comic strip. So it's a cool spot to visit. That is awesome. Yeah, when when I heard you speak, you you told this the story about this um, sweatshirt, I believe. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think the the audience would be interesting interested yeah. in hearing that. Honestly. So so one day um, one day I was at the archive, and from time to time, Schultz' um, wife, uh, of course, uh, he passed away in two thousand. Uh, his his widow Jenny Schultz uh, still alive, uh, still very active. Um, she comes into the archive with a box, and she's sort of you know she knew me by that point. Oh hey Blake, and then she's talking to the archivist. She said, Hey, I'm, I'm uh, uh, bringing in another box. We found this as we were going through some stuff in in one of the closets in one of the old bedrooms. Uh, this was some more stuff that just hadn't got transferred over here yet and she opens it up and she starts showing some different things and then she pulls out this looks like this kind of unremarkable gray sweatshirt when she unfolds it across the front is this almost like painted in fabric paint it is it is the the classic uh bust face of of beethoven that charles schultz used to draw to sit on top of uh on top of uh schroeder's piano and Jeannie says to, to me and the archivist says, uh, do you, do you know who made this? And we're like, uh, Charles Schultz. Cause that's the style it looked like. She said, she said, no. So this was a gag gift from Pablo Picasso. 
So, so apparently, apparently they had met at a party and, um, and, you know, Picasso had, had, uh, turns out was a peanuts fan, like basically everybody else. And, uh, they had gotten into a correspondence and sent some things back and forth. And so one year as a, as a gag gift, I suppose for a birthday or something, Picasso, <laughs> Picasso sent, uh, Charles Schultz, an original Picasso sweatshirt. <laughs> <laughs> that's almost not even a gag though like i know right <laughs> he could go up in an auction somewhere and who knows how how much money that would make i mean it's tied but, to picasso and charles schultz i mean it has to yeah, be yeah it yeah. has to be in the high seven figures yes yes but you know it it it, uh, it just goes to speak to how much um especially in the pop art circles, like how much in the 20th century that this was just sort of viewed as um, it's not, it's not really serious art. You know, it's not really like Charles Schultz would say all the time. He's like, I I would love to be referred to as an artist. He said, but the problem is I do all my art um, in a medium that's meant to be thrown away at the end of the day. Like after, after today, it's out, it's outdated. You don't need it anymore. Most people. Um, but I think it also speaks to just how great an artist Charles Schultz truly was because he transcended a disposable medium to still be speaking to us in the 21st century. I mean, I mean, penis is still running there. It's still yeah. just, I mean, it's rerunning, but still. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. And people, you know, it's, yeah. It, uh, I mean, Apple just did a, a multi-million dollar deal just a couple of years ago with Peanuts to, to um, you know, do their Snoopy show and, and things like that. So th- this is still uh, a huge property. You know, to, to put it in, in another context, uh, Forbes each year releases a uh, among their list of, of um, uh, richest people in the world. What, another list that they release each year is um, sort of the wealthiest estates of um, deceased uh, people. And um, for the last decade, at least, um, it might go back further, but it, at least the last decade, the top three have consistently been Michael Jackson, Elvis Presley, and Charles Schultz. So, I mean, Peanuts is enormous, and not just in America, all over the world. It just keeps getting bigger. Right? Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up on, I remember going to see the, the Peanuts movie when that came out. <laughs> yeah. Still love that movie. I, I'm, yeah, I'm they old. did such a great job of that. Yeah, I'm too old so, to love so, it. Yeah, another kind of behind the scenes thing about, about that, when, when I was working on researching this book, um, Big Sky Productions, which was the production company that, that made that movie, uh, they had part of their operations set up in Charles Schultz's old studio, which is right down the block from uh, from the museum. And so I got to meet some of those folks and sort of get a tour of, of some of the things they were working on before uh, before that came out in 2015. That is awesome. Has it yeah. really been seven years since that came out? It's hard to believe, but yeah, if, if, if memory serves, that was 2015. Gosh. Yeah. So what was, so as you were researching, I'm sure there were a ton of interesting kind of peanuts facts. What were like some of the more interesting things you you kind of picked up or learned about the comics themselves? Well, um, 
one thing that really stood out to me because as I was as I was studying this, I wasn't only learning about peanuts itself, but I was learning a lot about um, sort of the long history of newspaper comic strips and what that business was like and and um, what those kind of circles were like. And, you know, one one of the things that stuck out is truly amazing once you understand that that business is, um, you know, typically it, it was it was not uncommon in the first half of the 20th century for um, newspaper cartoonists to become uh, quite famous if if they if they you know somebody like Al Cap or George Harriman or Walt Kelly um, uh, uh, Mort Walker uh, wasn't it Beetle Bailey uh, was another um, you know these guys would if you were successful, you're syndicated newspapers all over the country, um, which means that wherever people travel, you know, you, you have this in common. It's, it's a, it's a national medium. Um, and these guys, uh, would, you know, they'd be interviewed in the, in the big magazines of the time, time magazine, um, uh, life magazine, reader's digest, uh, uh, would have pieces from them from time to time. And so as these guys tended to get really big, the, the custom for the business was to uh, sort of a studio model, which was that the artist who originally created and drew um, the thing would transition to sort of a managerial standpoint where they were sort of creative director, but they would have a staff of artists and colorists and letterers below them that would actually do the work would draw the strips and uh, do the lettering and everything. Well, Charles, Charles Schultz became the biggest of, of all um, as far as his income. He, he, he ultimately dwarfed anything that, that any of the comic artists before him uh, had achieved. And yet he was insistent on not going with the customary model where you just shop it out after a few years, somebody else, he, he from from day one all the way to the last day he drew every single one of them he lettered them himself uh he was always really proud of his lettering and he was a really good letterer uh if you spend any time looking at this stuff um it just it, it, it it's it's remarkable how hands-on he was with peanuts uh, he said in one interview there were uh, a, another artist was asking him why you know why do you spend so much like this is a full-time job for you. A lot of guys usually shop this out. Um, he said, you know, I spend all the time with it because I love it. He said that like shopping it out would be like going to the golf course, having somebody else tee up the golf ball and hit it for you. You know, like what's the fun in that? Um, so he, uh, he was very hands-on, which is, which is really unique and also gives us a really unique perspective of one artist daily, his daily thoughts for 50 years. It almost That's, becomes a diary in a way. Yeah, that, I mean, it really, it really is. You can almost see kind of his perspectives on the world changing, mm-hmm. especially through through Linus. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Linus, uh, Linus is one of my um, favorite characters. I really identify with Linus a lot because you know Linus um, tends to sort of have. Um, it, it, 
sometimes he can have a little trouble keeping his keeping his his uh, his feet on the ground because his head's so high up in the clouds, thinking deep thoughts. Um, and and sometimes I I can definitely identify with that. He, um, you know, he comes about. You actually see him in fifty two, fifty three, um, as as a newborn. There's a there's a birth announcement. Um, uh, you know, check out Peanuts next week. Uh, Lucy's getting a little brother, and and sure enough, here comes this uh, this uh, little baby, and so we see him grow up in the fifties, and, and it's it's a really interesting dynamic because he's he's sort of learning from the other kids, and especially learning from Lucy, uh, his big sister, and Lucy is so confidently wrong sometimes about the way she explains the world to him that uh that it it drives uh charlie brown to um uh great anguish as he overhears these uh these lessons um so one of the one of the ways that linus begins to sort of find his own voice is is really in theology um and he becomes sort of a sort of a a mouthpiece for Charles Schultz to reflect on some of the things that he was really deeply considering and, and working through himself. Um, he, he had been a, um, a world war II veteran. Uh, he was drafted into world war II. He, you know, this kind of guy like it, which, which may resonate with some of your listeners right now, as we look at what's going on in the world. Um, you know, thoughts about what is this going to mean for me as a young adult? Um, well, as, as World War II broke out, um, Charles Schultz went from I want to be an artist to I've got to learn how to be an infantryman and, and, and fight the Germans in World War II. And so um, it, ironically, coming from a family who was German-American, some of his relatives spoke German around the house. Um, so um, he... Uh, goes through that experience, comes back home and feels very uh, lonely, very disconnected. His mother had passed away while he was in his basic training. Um, uh, his father had remarried. And so everything was just very different when he came back home. Um, and for him, the thing that really helped ground him, aside from his art, was uh, was a new um, faith. Um, he connected with Christianity for the first time in his life. And, and that became a really uh, essential part of his life uh, and thinking. And so um, Linus becomes a way of, of expressing that part of, of Charles Schultz thinking, most famously, of course, in, in the um, Charlie Brown Christmas special. And he caught a lot of flack for that special, didn't he? Because <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's really unconventional at the time. Um, you know, w once again, Schultz was taking some of the industry wisdom and rethinking it, challenging the norms. Um, with that, with that special, uh, well, first of all, it, it gets created out of basically out of thin air. Um, Schultz in the early sixties had been contacted by a, uh, a documentary, uh, filmmaker, uh, named Lee Mendelson, also from California, who 
um, had been he had been working on a Willie Mays documentary when Willie Mays was playing for the San Francisco Giants. And it just so happened one of the days that they were in the stadium shooting that documentary, it had been Peanuts Day. And so Charles Schultz had been there and had thrown out the first pitch and all this. And and Lee Mendelson meets him and gets talking to him and said, man, this guy's really interesting. And so he contacts him. Hey, I'd love to do a documentary about you. And so he does a documentary. It ends up being called uh, You're a Good Man, Charles, uh, Charles Schultz or Charlie Schultz, I think they call it. But um, and um, but uh, Mendelssohn is is having trouble. None of the networks will pick it up. Um, he keeps trying to sell it and, it, and it's just not selling. Um, one day he is talking to one of the uh, advertising executives back on the East Coast. Um, once again, trying to pitch this idea and, uh, the ad executive says, well, you know, I'm not, I, I don't really have any of my, uh, clients that would be interested in that. He said, but I do know that Coca-Cola is looking for, uh, looking to sponsor a holiday special. And Lee Mendelson says, oh, in that case, they would love a Charlie Brown Christmas. And, you know, they say, oh, Charlie Brown Christmas. Like, yeah, it's this whole Christmas story, Christmas pageant, all about Charlie Brown with the characters animated, uh, with with music. Love it. Uh, let us talk to Coca-Cola. Uh, you get us a script and and we'll we'll run with it. So Lee Mendelson gets on the phone, calls Charles Schultz and says, hey, good news. I just sold Charlie Brown's Christmas. And Charles Schultz says, what in what in the world is a Charlie Brown Christmas? And Lee Mendelson said, uh, it's the half hour TV special that we're going to write this weekend. So <laughs> clear your schedule. <laughs> and sure enough, they did. They, they, they he he drove up to Northern California and over a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, they come up with uh, with a script. Um, and as I said, it's going to be a really unconventional sort of thing because um schultz wants um actual um age realistic voice actors um so they're dealing with four five six seven year olds uh, at one point uh they mentioned that the little girl that that uh was the voice of sally brown uh, was about four years old and that it certain uh, on certain lines they had to feed it to her syllable by syllable to help her through the line pronounce the the words in the line so when you hear that sort of stunted kind of awkward delivery of some of the characters that's because there's somebody in the background actually feeding the line to to a little kid who's who's voicing this um uh, another unconventional element of it was uh that the music in it uh, was not going to be orchestrated like you would have seen in a Disney special. It was not going to be some sort of of um, kind of contemporary uh, pop music for the time. Instead, um, they went with piano jazz, um, very kind of even killed uh, the the first time. Uh, Vince Guaraldi, who was a uh, an artist out of uh, northern out of San Francisco. Um, his trio uh, is the is the group that uh, did the music for that uh, for that first uh, piece. And uh, the first time that he ever comes up with the uh, Linus and Lucy theme, which most people probably think of as the Peanuts theme. 
he he calls he calls Schultz on the telephone. Says, "Hey, I've got the Linus and Lucy theme." And and Schultz says, you know, basically he's in the middle of trying to say, "Well, well, great. Next time you're over, you can play it for me." And <laughs> and while he's trying to get the words out of his mouth, Vince Guaraldi has already gone to the piano and laid the phone receiver there on the piano and is trying to play it over the phone. You got to hear this. <laughs> so, um, you know, it had this kind of, uh, kind of low key uh, jazz piano music. Um, it doesn't really have any action. The animation is not, it's not like Disney animation where there's sort of uh, a roundness and, and sort of um, um, depth to the art. It's really pretty flat um, and uh, very intentionally 2D in a lot of ways. And, um, and then finally in the climax of, of the program, um, they, Linus, like everything stops and Linus recites uh, the better part of Luke chapter two uh, when he's explaining the meaning of Christmas. So when when CBS, who who agreed to um, to air this and Coca-Cola executives sit down to watch a screening of this thing for the first time, um, they're very concerned that this thing is just it's it's just a little offbeat. It's weird for you know, what you would have expected at the time. I mean, think, uh, think um, one of its contemporaries is uh, uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, right? And it's got that famous, very singable, you know, you're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. And then here you've got Charlie Brown Christmas over here, you know, Christmas time is here. (laughs) You know, like, like, um, like you took a sedative to relax before you, you know, before you, uh, film this thing and so um so negatives are very concerned about it they're also concerned that there are going to be people offended by um this putting holy scripture serious religious stuff into a tv cartoon um and yet schultz says you know what um his line about it was uh if we don't do it Right. If, if we don't point this out, uh, that uh, that Christmas is not about uh, gifts and trees and lights uh, primarily, but Christmas is about remembering this important event in in world and Western history. And um, so with it, um, CBS planned to run it one time and that was going to be the end of it. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, it was it was meant to be a one off. And it was so overwhelmingly popular that by the end of that week that it aired, uh, CBS had uh, publicly announced that, one, they would air it again next Christmas on multiple dates, and it would become regular uh, uh, airing annually. And two, that they had contracted three more Charlie Brown specials. And so that would be where we get, uh, I think... um, uh, the Thanksgiving special, the Halloween special, and uh, um, uh, I, I believe was it Charlie Brown All Stars or one of the uh, one of the other early specials. I've um, got them all on DVD back home. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. the life of me, the th- the last one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, happy New- but, maybe Happy New Year, Charlie Brown. Um, 
that one's that one's pretty quick that one's pretty soon after but it's not one of it's not one of those that first that first batch um uh you know uh, another funny thing schultz would uh schultz would joke later on that um that they ended up making so many christmas specials so many holiday specials that (laughs) they started running out of holidays he said so eventually we got to making you know, it's Arbor Day, Charlie Brown, because we didn't. Yeah, you know, never about to, I guess they. I guess they could have gone with uh, it's Tax Day, Charlie Brown, or something like that. But, uh, you age up all the characters twenty years, and they're all just like running their hands through their hair. The IRS has gone after Snoopy. <laughs> right. Uh, what is, where, what is he doing with all the income from these secret jobs he has? He has, still hasn't paid his war war taxes. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. funny. Yeah, I grew up on those specials, and I, I was surprised to hear because, like, in my family, it's always been this is this is it's like the golden the standard for Christmas. Yeah, TV. and then yeah. you hear like. Who who thought it was a bad idea? Why would you? Yeah, well, and it's so and it's so weird from this side of it to think that. Um, but for for where TV was at at the time, um, it it just there was um, there was a lot of concern that it wouldn't work. I think also, uh, have you ever watched the show Mad Men? I uh, have. It was, yeah. Yes. Um, Mad Men really touched on this in some of its kind of middle seasons where you begin to have this emerging rift between uh, some of the older generation, like, um, like Don Draper and, and, um, and his boss, uh, Roger Sterling. Um, and some of the new talent that's coming in, some of these new guys, they're a little more free. They're a little more, you know, they like a little, and, um, and I think peanuts was really falling right in that space in the middle because for for every buttoned up conservative Republican voter like uh, Peanuts fan, there was also a college leftist like you know new new left kind of um, uh, Peanuts fan as well. Like it it really because of its oddness, it connected with with both sides. Um, Schultz just kind of hit on a magical, um, recipe that, that fit a moment that was where everything else in the world felt, felt like it was splitting in half. Um, and yet here's this one thing that Americans can still agree on, um, this, this weird little piece of art. We, we need another, another Charlie Brown special these days. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that, that that solves all the problems russia gets out of ukraine yeah. <laughs> and they, it, it's it's world peace charlie brown that, hey yeah. yes. I, yes i think we could all get behind that yep gosh it's it's just so fascinating to me um so i guess really one of the other things i wanted to ask is so when when i heard you speak and i just mm-hmm. wanted to say great great speech by the way i, I left thank you thoroughly interested um, you mentioned you went kind of character by character and talked about mm-hmm. their their influences. And I don't want to give away your book, but I was just <laughs> kind of curious if there was one character that you would really say kind of influenced America the most. Mm. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I, have, I think if you're going for a character that has has most uh, sort of sort of influence and connect with generations of Americans, it, it, it's got to be Snoopy. Um, you know, Snoopy represents in in the most sort of uh, basic way. Snoopy represents the special love and connection and frustration that that we all have uh all of us who are pet owners you know you have this you have this sort of connection with this weird uh little creature that that lives inside with you uh you know or maybe you know spit you know goes on walks with you and things and they can't talk but they they obviously have personality Right. Uh, we uh, it was so funny. We we adopted a couple of years ago to uh, little Dotsons and this one was sort of chubby and the other one was real small and slender. And the small and slender one was the bossy one of the two. And the big chubby one was she is like the most peaceful, wouldn't harm a fly, like scared. She's scared of our house cat. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> which the house cat loves because she loves to sneak up on her and terrorize her, you know, jump out and scare her and stuff. Um, but Snoopy connects with, with that element, right? Because Snoopy, you, he has his own personality and because we're in a comic strip, we can hear, we can read his thoughts, right? He has a whole, he becomes a whole character. Um, now he evolved into that initially, he was just a, a dog. In fact, initially, it, it seems as though Snoopy is a stray dog. It's not even clear whose dog he is. Um, but pretty soon he becomes Charlie Brown's dog. And he has this dog house. Um, and uh, there's a great strip in the early 50s where Charlie Brown and, uh, and, and uh, Shermie uh, one of the other early characters are walking home from school and they're looking at all the houses in the background and, and all the houses have TV antennas on. And uh, Shermie says, man, everybody's getting a TV antenna these days. Have you noticed? And there's, there's a panel where Charlie Brown looks over at the doghouse and it has a TV antenna. And uh, Charlie Brown says, yeah, I guess you're right. Everyone is getting a TV antenna. <laughs> that is uh, fantastic. Um, but you know, one of the things that I that I highlight in the book is some of the ways that Snoopy sort of transcends just being, um, you know, sort of picking up on some of these humorous themes of of popular, you know, culture in the time in the time period, and and becomes a vehicle for Charles Schultz and other Americans, um, especially veterans. Um, uh, well, they weren't veterans at the time. They were, you know, active service members in the Vietnam War. Um, Snoopy's battle with the Red Baron, you know, is set in World War One flying ace, right? So it's it's set sort of in the mode of old school black and white war films. Um, but it is unfolding that that storyline starts in 1965. Uh, as Vietnam is, it's, it is a thing that, that people have heard of, but it's as obscure as, you know, if we were 
talking about events going like uh, like last year when we were talking about events going on with the military coup in Myanmar. People, tons of people like, okay, maybe I've heard of Myanmar, Myanmar, or maybe I've heard of Burma, um, but I I may not be able to find anywhere you know where it is on a map or you know why this is important or what's going on you know all, all these sorts of things. And Vietnam was sort of the same way in '65, but increasingly after the the spring of 65 it starts becoming more and more a centerpiece of american conversation so much so that it passes in 66 and 67 it passes civil rights as the number one greatest concern of americans in the gallup poll um so um in this context, Snoopy is fighting this war, and it's becoming very popular. Schultz gets tons of letters, and people writing in, or people uh, building. Uh, a number of people like built uh, flying dog houses, like they would build these contraptions and, and put Snoopy on it, and like actually fly. and And people still do. You can find videos on YouTube of people flying like these flying ace dog houses that they built uh with the little like lawnmower motor propeller you know on it and stuff uh, it's, it's crazy stuff what people will do with their time and talents but kind of cool too yeah. but um um you know so so people are loving this schultz is doing it but it increasingly becomes entangled with what's happening with things going downhill in vietnam um so much so that um, for example, uh, in Christmas, uh, 69 and 70 Schultz, uh, would always, um, sort of, uh, include a special comic strip for Christmas. And it usually always ended with the characters all getting together and, and a big banner, you know, Merry Christmas, everyone, you know, peace on earth, goodwill towards men, you know, something like this every year. Well, in 69, I believe it is, um, Schultz very abruptly, if you're reading year to year, uh, changes to something entirely different. And instead of this one being a Merry Christmas uh, scene, it is the flying ace um, distraught after another uh, uh, being shot down by the Red Baron once again. And he is sort of head in hand with a half drink root beer. And he says, uh, he says, curse this stupid war. Is it ever going to end? Right. Um, he's, he's so distraught that by the end, Charlie Brown starts to starts to worry that, you know, um, Christmas can be an awfully long, uh, awfully lonely, lonely time when you're far from home. Um, and so what what the flying ace becomes is really a, a sort of um this empathetic letter to um, soldiers in Vietnam, many of them in the same situation that 20 year old Charles Schultz had been in sent off to war when that was never what their plan had been for their life. Uh, but that's what their life has become. And, you know, I interviewed a number of these guys and, and found letters and other things for, from others um, to talk about, you know, how uh, important it was them reading uh, Peanuts. A lot of them, their family, when they would send letters, would include the newspaper strips in their letters so they could keep up with uh, with uh, what was going on with Snoopy. Um, they used uh, if you if you look up uh, Vietnam War insignias and and um, 
look up uh, paintings on airplanes and helicopters and, and all of these sorts of things, you find the flying ace all over the Vietnam War. There was a uh, there was a, a LZ uh, a Snoopy uh, landing zone Snoopy. There was an LZ Charlie Brown. These are the official call names on the U.S. Uh, military site maps. Um, so, you know, Snoopy, um, I, I, I think my chapter in the book is called uh, Snoopy is the hero in Vietnam um, because Schultz was articulating this this empathy of, you know, we've got to. This war sucks. This war is and and um, it, it is not going well. At the same time, we can't forget that the boys that are over there fighting this war aren't there by their choice, and we can't abandon them. Right? Um, there, there, there's this really kind of empathetic and and um, kind of conflicted message here. Um, in in peanuts, and a lot of Americans really identified with it. It really resonated in the way that they they hated what was going on, but also they feared that that we were abandoning um, supporting the troops. And um, so while we while we also protested the the incompetence of of uh, those leading the war. It was a it was a tricky situation for sure. I, until I heard you talk, I didn't realize that. For me, history, especially with like Charlie Brown, doesn't really connect with the real world, and so that that was the <laughs> yeah. most fascinating thing to me was hearing you kind of tie it all together. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's amazing to read these things in hindsight because you know Charles Schultz was at, at the end of the day he had to come up with an idea for tomorrow's comic strip. And so, you know, sometimes the things that inspired him was what was going on with his kids at home. But sometimes what inspired him were the things that were going on in the news and in the world uh, that everyone else was concerned about. And uh, and in a lot of ways, Schultz built up a reputation as someone that Americans would look to kind of like we might look to a. um I don't know who in our time, like a like an Oprah or uh, or or a Will Smith or a Barack Obama or some like like somebody who like when we're going through uh, the country's going through a tough time, we look to what's their public statement on this, right? Because how are they thinking about this? Because I'm really struggling with how to understand this. Um, Charles Schultz was one of those figures, and Snoopy was part of his voice in in commenting, particularly on Vietnam. Yeah, that's it's just fascinating, like, honestly. Yeah. and I, I really appreciate you you writing it down and taking the time to to come here and kind of educate me and the audience about it. Um, sure. I guess I, I really just have one more one more question for you, and then um, okay. you can tell people where to find the book. But okay. um, so Charles Schultz, you've you've talked a lot about his stances and how he used the Peanuts characters for that. Mm-hmm. Do you think the characters ever really? impacted him like do you think it ever kind of took came off the page and he started to kind of it started to like change the way he thought about things Mm. well so when you know a lot of people would ask charles schultz are are you charlie brown is charlie brown biographical is that is that you and he would always respond um a part of me is charlie brown but a part of me is also lucy 
and a part of me is also Linus, and a part of me is also Snoopy. Um, they're all parts of of kind of his, he would say, kind of his different moods, you know, and, and we can all identify with that. Like, I always have trouble when people ask, like, so are you, you're pretty outgoing, aren't you? Because, you know, like, I really enjoy, I do, I do enjoy talking in front of groups like the one, you know, that, that we had a couple of weeks ago, or I enjoy teaching, being in front of people. Um, but sometimes I'm conflicted because like, there are just as many times that I'd like to just be left alone and, and sit by myself and think. And, um, uh, and so Schultz, you know, saw it as an expression of, of the different facets of his own personality. But I think if, if there's one in particular that is sort of a character that, that changes Charles Schultz, it's gotta be Franklin. Um, Franklin, the, the, uh, African-American character who, who turned out to be the first black character in, um, modern comic art. Um, it, it, uh, Franklin is out there, um, as a regular character, uh, before, before Marvel, uh, is doing a, a regular, uh, Black Panther series, um, uh, before, uh, any other comic strip is is having regular main characters who are who are black. Um, so um, Franklin comes about through a series of letters and conversations that uh, some of Schultz fans uh, were having with him about the real need to uh, diversify American culture and to and to have some positive representations of black America in in pop media and schultz initially was really conflicted about that really had a lot of reservation not because he didn't agree but because he was concerned that you know he's like i mean to put it like in modern terms he, he, we would say like he's a white dude from minnesota like what does he what does he know about black america you know as far as the experience and that's really what he says he's like i'm afraid it would be patronizing for me to try and voice a black character um, but I think through the experiences of the, the mid and late sixties, especially the assassination of Martin Luther King and, and Bobby Kennedy in 68, there's just a really, um, a lot of turmoil going on in the world and a, and a feel a fear that more was coming. Right. Um, and within that Schultz sort of grows into the confidence to say, you know what, I may not be perfect at writing Franklin, but Franklin is necessary. Franklin is necessary in our culture right now. And so he steps out on a limb. He does it. He gets some blowback, um, especially from some of the Southern newspapers. They really didn't like Franklin showing up in the classroom with the white students because classes were still segregated in the South in a lot of cases. Um, but um, he he pushes through it and and he left a mark on on american culture and i think franklin you know to answer your question i think franklin left a mark on charles schultz um it, it made him realize just how it, the responsibility that you have when you have such a large platform uh like he does the responsibility you have to to help influence good in the world right that that's something i i I honestly didn't know where you were going to take that. And so I was, I, I, I was like, I, I kind of, that's not a good question was my first thought, but that, yeah, that, I mean, 
Franklin, I mean, growing up with them, I never really realized the impact. And then again, hearing you speak, it's like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, but, but, you know, that, that was to Schultz design, right? He didn't want Franklin to stand out as, as somehow different from the other characters. He, the, the, what they were trying to articulate and, and it was an important message for his time is that the, these kids uh, live in a world where race doesn't matter. Race doesn't matter. They're, they're children, they're friends, they love one another, they care about one another, and, and the color of their skin does not matter the first bit about the value of the person. Um, and, and, you know, we've, the conversation has changed by the 21st century. We're starting to see, you know, well, there, you know, there are some historical difficulties and things that we, that we should appreciate. We shouldn't ignore that. And that, that's not, a, that's not at all what Charles Schultz was, was saying with Franklin. Um, but, uh, but it was an important message, uh, for its time about just equal value of human beings. All, all affected by these, these new newspaper comics with, <laughs> little kids and a dog yeah it's, yeah it's incredible. it's incredible it is absolutely incredible well i i want to thank you so much for coming on and um want to give you the opportunity to tell people where they can find your book and um just kind of give you the chance to, to plug that sure yeah so um my uh once again my name is blake scott ball uh the book is charlie brown's america the popular politics of peanuts Nice alliteration there. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can find it everywhere uh, you buy your books. Amazon, uh, uh, you can go to barnesandnoble.com, booksamillion.com. Um, uh, they all have it in stock. And uh, for a nice price, you can also find it in uh, both ebook version and audiobook. Um, it, it came out as an audiobook in October. I, I saw that and um, we're actually, we have a, we're, we're sponsored by Audible. And so I'm oh, like, awesome. I, I, yeah, I'm going to get to, to go listen later. I haven't, I haven't gotten a hard copy yet. I'm going to get to go listen. I'm excited it, for that. I got one of the coolest things about, about writing this book is going and listening to the audiobook and hearing like a, it's a really good recording too. A really great, uh, we, we landed a good voice actor and, uh, to, to hear my writing read was, it's just, it's bizarre, but awesome. <laughs> yeah. I can, I can understand that. Uh, not as obviously not as much, but I can completely see, completely see that. I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to hearing it. And again, thank you so much for, for just sharing all this knowledge and just fascinating history. Uh, th- thank you for having me. It's fun. It's fun talking about it every time. Mm-hmm.